0: Well, good morning, Countryside, and I bring you greetings from my family. Uh, we have known you for a long time, and the Lord has built some deep connections. I think the strongest connection, of course, is the connection of prayer, so thank you for praying for us as we do Christ's work. It's not our work, and as we do His work, uh, thank you for holding the ropes for us in that very important way. The Lord Jesus is doing great advances for his kingdom and the gospel in our generation, probably more so than ever ever before. And these are exciting times, but they're also sober times because as we do his work, we begin to face more heat and more opposition because the God of this world doesn't like what is happening with the kingdom of God. And so oftentimes we're at the edge, if you will, of life and death, in small ways and big ways, whether you're working here in Dallas or you're in other parts of the world, of suffering for Christ. But this is normal. Jesus told us this would be the case. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And throughout church history, believers as we live for Christ have been beaten and jailed for confessing Christ and they've done it with confidence because they had the certain hope that their life was eternally secure in Jesus But just this past year, if you look at the statistics, 360 million Christians in 2021, or one in seven believers around the world, suffered significant persecution for their faith. Every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. And with close to over a total of 6,000 martyrs, that last year saw a 24% increase in Christians who died for Jesus. And so we are doing something right, but there's also opposition that comes with that. You know, this has always been the marching order of missions, that we march with our blood being shed, even for the people that we serve and we live for. That's what Jesus did. He gave his life for us. How could we expect anything less as we walk in his footsteps? One of the first Protestant missionaries and his name is Bartholomew Ziegenbog. uh, Before William Carey, 80 years before William Carey, he was the first Protestant missionary to India. Not many people know about him because his name is a mouthful so it's hard to say it even. But he arrived in the Tamil-speaking part of India and in Trangkabar where there was a Danish colony, his own nationality, nearly 300 years ago on July 9th, 1706. And immediately his work was opposed both by the Hindus and also by the Danes, the people that he was joined with nationally. In 1707, Zigenbog spent four months in prison on a charge that he was converting too many natives and it was going to cause a rebellion. And he wrote a letter from prison talking about some of the stress that he went through. He said, my skin was like a red cloth. The heat here is very great, especially during April, May, and June, in which season the wind blows from the inland and it feels like the heat comes straight out of an oven. But that was not the the crux of his suffering. As soon as he got there, his burden was for the Tamil people to give them a Bible, to give them... A sense of who the lord jesus christ was in their own language and they didn't even have a proper structure to their language in those days and immediately it's sa- it's it said that from day one he would spend time from 7 a.m to 8 p.m at night without ceasing listening to locals speak tamil to him when he was eating he would sometimes have tamil poets come and recite tamil poetry to him in six months he learned the language In 12 years, he translated the entire New Testament single-handedly into Tamil. And that Bible is still being used today. And he kept working till the day he died. He died in 13 years because his colleagues even said he, he just burned himself out. Just trying to help people to understand Christ in Tamil. When he died, he had completed the Old Testament up to Ruth. And then somebody else finished the work. What makes a man live with such recklessness? Not even afraid of his own death. One letter to his mission from late 1713 describes 10 strategies that he prayerfully had. And I'm just reading the first and the last one. But it says this, the first goal that they had, Ziegenbog, is we missionaries want to die to ourselves and we request God to use us as his instruments. The last strategy And these aren't really strategies, they're convictions. He says, we suffer for the gospel knowing that Christ has the power to raise us up again. You know, the ability to not be ashamed for the gospel in the face of great opposition cannot come from ourselves. If it comes from ourselves, we're going to lose the battle right away. It has to come from Christ and who He is. And so with that in mind, I I want to encourage you by turning to a passage in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, a passage that you know well in your Bibles. It may title it as the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And I feel that that misses the point in some ways. It's really a passage that should be speaking about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Lazarus is incidental. The hero of this story is our Lord Jesus, and this passage is given to us even so that we would grow in a greater view of Christ as the conqueror of death, because that's what we need. That's what we need as we serve him. This is the last of seven signs in the Gospel of John. You know, the whole Gospel of John is structured around signs that point to the deity and the power of Christ as our Lord and Savior. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the first sign is a wedding and the last sign is a funeral. And Christ takes us through all of life in these signs. This is two or three weeks before the cross. And this miracle of Christ resurrecting Lazarus was so evident of his might and power that it even was one of the factors that caused the Jewish leaders to say, this this man is too powerful, we have to kill him. And in doing so, they appointed him and pushed him as the redeemer of the world. They didn't even know it. And this miracle is performed on a man that is not important. Who lived in a city called Bethany that is an insignificant city. And that's, that's really the atmosphere of the story. The point isn't Lazarus. The point isn't Bethany. The point is who Jesus is. And even as we dive into the middle of this passage today, I'm just going to be looking at verses 17 through 45 Just to set a little bit of the context before we get into into it. Jesus hears from not strangers, but Mary and Martha, his friends, and even Lazarus, whom he loved, that Lazarus is sick. And what does he do? He delays going there. He spends four more days in Bethabra, where he was preaching and ministering, and lets the sickness continue to consume Lazarus. If you look at verse 6, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. These are the delays of love. And sometimes in the spirit of this age of the prosperity gospel, we think, Jesus, you need to come right now and you need to heal me right now and you need to give me what I need right now. And you know what? That's not what we need. And that's not what he gives and so you can even see in the sovereignty of Christ in this passage that he, he allows Lazarus to get sick and he allows him to die. Temporarily, it's sleep. He calls it sleep. Because Jesus wants to use death. What's the greatest fear that we have because of the consequences of sin and the work of the devil in this world is death? Death. But our Savior is greater than death. And he wants to use death as a tool to show his power and his glory. And that's what he says. He says even in in verse 14 and 15, he says, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. Isn't that a curious verse? I am glad for your sakes. He's not glad that Lazarus is dead, but he's glad that the situation that occurs through his sovereignty occurred. That I was not there, so that you, the disciples, may believe. That's the point of this passage. It's to showcase the glory and the power of Christ as our resurrection in our life. We need that today. We need that today. And so let's read John chapter 11. If you're there, if you're not there, turn in your copy of God's Word and, and follow along verses 17 through 45. Follow along with me, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the, city, the, the sister of the disease, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Do you get the emphasis of the passage? When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. That was the goal of Christ, to glorify his name, to show his power, and to produce faith. To produce faith, yes, in the disciples, but to also produce faith in those that were dead. And as we look at this passage, this passage just is soaked with the way in which Jesus is the shepherd of sinners. He's the shepherd of of the week he's the one who walks to the valley of the shadow of death isn't this interesting it's before his own death he walks to the valley of shadow of death with us so as we look at this passage i want to encourage you this morning because as you serve christ i dare say you are going to suffer for christ if you haven't already you will be But how you face that suffering must be not with your own strength, not with your own resources, but it has to be with a sense of weakness, crying out to Christ, would you give me your power? Would you give me your sustenance, even if I face death? And so there's three ministries of Jesus in this passage that we're going to look at in three scenes that enable us to look at death through him without fear. Three ministries of Jesus. And the first one is found in verses 17 through 27. And it is this. The first ministry of Jesus is Jesus strengthens our faith in the midst of doubt. As we face the challenges of life, let's be honest, we're not a strong people. We begin to doubt. We begin to get weak. And Mary and Martha are illustrations of that. But Christ comes alongside weak people because when we are weak we know we need him and he strengthens us in the area that matters the most and that's not the physical but it's the spiritual in our faith and there's two ways in which he strengthens the faith of these dear saints and he continues to do that through the spirit as we read this passage the first way is by teaching us to wait those who wait on the lord will become stronger and sometimes we want quick fixes and quick answers and that's not the pathway to grow in Christ. You can see in verse 17 when Jesus comes to Bethany that Lazarus has already been dead for four days in the tomb. And the way in which they would work with their dead in those days in Jewish culture is they didn't embalm them. They did nothing to stop the decay. They just folded the body in with spices to keep the smell away. But after four days, there's not much you can do. The fourth day is apparently the worst in terms of the decomposition as the body begins to just waste away. And all the blood begins to drain out of different parts of the body. Jesus intentionally waited till this happened to his friend Lazarus so that he could show his power. And it wasn't like, there's almost a slight indictment that Bethany was a long trip. If you look at verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. The text even seems to indicate if Christ had wanted, he could have come quickly. It was only two miles away. In verse 19, many of the Jews had come to comfort this family. And as you, you look at some of the culture that the Jews had, you can see this even in the book of Job mourners would come sometimes with food and they would even mourn with the family for 30 days first three days were for weeping seven days for lamentation and they would remove all the furniture and sit on the ground and the bereaved were allowed to sit on chairs and they wouldn't even speak to them until they spoke they just wept with them you know what Jesus waited so that these Jews would be there to come to faith in him. If he had just healed Lazarus, the only people that would have seen his power was Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Jesus had a bigger plan through even allowing Lazarus to die than than Lazarus had, than than Mary had, than Martha had, and and that's the way he works in our lives. And we're, we're thinking, Lord, why are you making us wait? I don't know why, you don't know why, but it's always so that greater gospel purposes can be accomplished in your life. This was an opportunity for Jesus to share his resurrection power with so many lost ones. He, he was able to heal and raise people from the dead right away. We've, we've seen this in at least two previous occasions. And Mary knew this, Martha knew this. In Luke 7, the only son of the widow of Nain, Jesus moved with compassion, touched the coffin and raised him from the dead. In Jairus' daughter's case, Jesus comes just moments after she dies and resurrects her from the dead. But with Lazarus, this is four days of decay. And there's just a higher sense of a demonstration of the power of Christ over death. Martha goes to greet Jesus in verse 20, and you can see the difference in personalities between these two sisters in in all instances. She's the the one that takes the initiative, and, and, and Mary just stays at home mourning and she goes to meet him alone, possibly again to protect Jesus. See how we think we need to protect Jesus. I mean, he, he needs to protect us. In verse 8 of this chapter, the disciples even warned Jesus against going towards Bethany in Judea because there's many Jews that want to kill him. Possibly even some of the ones that had come to mourn wanted to kill Jesus or speak against him. So Martha goes to meet him secretly, and she doesn't greet him in verse 21, but even expresses the doubts that she has. If you were here, my brother would not have died. This is what we do when we face suffering, and especially death, isn't it? We begin to ask the if, and the would've, and the could've questions, and... If only we had gone to that doctor and if only we had consulted with this one and, you know, we begin to question the providence of God. And waiting is good for us because waiting exposes the chinks in our faith. It exposes those areas that need to be strengthened by the Lord. Jesus encourages her even as she speaks to Him and she says, Lord, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give of you. I don't think she's, she's hoping or thinking about a resurrection because if you look at the rest of the text, she's thinking about the resurrection on the last day. But she still has some sort of a, a faith. She's, she's, she's a saint, but she's a weak saint. She says, Lord, I know your prayers are answered. I don't think you can ask for Lazarus to come from the dead, though. And when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, She even responds to that statement with, yeah, I know, on the last day. Isn't it wonderful that when Jesus sees the weakness of Martha's faith that represents me and you, he doesn't scold her, he doesn't rebuke her. And there's a lesson we can learn from Christ about being at the deathbed of even the saints is don't rebuke people grieving over death. Strengthen them. And so that's what he does. As, as he says, Lazarus will rise again. And As Martha just doesn't see that he's speaking about even in the here and now, Jesus gives her the privilege of listening to the fifth of his seven I am statements. I am, ego eimi, that connects him to Yahweh in the Old Testament. The God who delivered Israel from Egypt is the same God who is here in the person of Jesus Christ. And as he says, I am the resurrection and the life, notice what he's saying, and this is so crucial. He's not saying, I have the power of resurrection and life, because that's even a little bit distanced from who he is. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Just think about this for, for a minute, every newborn baby, every Animal, every plant that exists and comes into being in this world comes into being because Jesus causes it. And life is not outside of him, life is in him. That's what he's saying. Colossians 1:16, for by him all things were created, and he holds all things together. See, the focus in this passage is, is, is off Lazarus, it's on Jesus and His person and His power. Both physical life, and spiritual life consists in Jesus Christ. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone in verse 26 who lives and believes in me, what a statement this is, will never die. Will never die. We need to think about this in moments when we face death, I was counseling one of my church members some years ago, and he had terminal cancer at that time. And as I went to counsel him as, as a pastor, because I knew him and I, and I loved him, I broke down and I started weeping. And he put his arm around me. The cancer patient was counseling the pastor. And he said, Why are you weeping? And I said, Because I'm going to miss you. And he said, What's wrong with you? I can't die and I was like oh yeah I forgot (laughs) but that's what Christ has done ultimately a few weeks later as he cries on the cross and he bears the wrath of God for us and says it is finished everyone who believes in him will never die this is the strongest negation in the Greek never never die you know and the key here in this text, in verse 26, as he looks at this weak woman, like you and me, is, do you believe this? The reason why your faith gets weak is you look at your circumstances, you look at the grave, you look at the tomb. Look away from that and look at me. Do you believe this? And the Spirit grants Martha in that moment, and that's what he does in our lives, it's, is as we look at Christ through the Word of God, he grants us a faith that we do not have. It's a spirit produced in a spirit given faith, yes, in salvation, but I think also continually in sanctification we need this. And she makes this great confession that comes from the heavens. It doesn't come from us. It comes from the heavens. And she says in the perfect tense in the Greek, I have believed and I continue to believe this is my survival, Lord. And notice what she says. Not that you are going to do good things in my brother's life or you're going to do... She doesn't know what's going to happen. She says the most important thing I've realized now is who you are is my portion. And she makes this great confession. She says, Lord, I recognize that you are sovereign Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. I recognize that you are the anointed Messiah, the the mediator. That you are the Son of God. That you are God himself. And that you are sent into the world. That you are the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. Even going back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. This is where faith must rest. In Christ. The Moravians, who actually were inspired by Bartholomew Zingenbog, who also were secondary in, in so much missions work in the 1700s. In 1733, when they began a mission in Greenland with the Inuit tribe, they thought in their own thinking and strategies as they worked with this tribe that they couldn't even speak or read or write their own language, that the most important thing we need to do is to to have a school and, and educate these people because they can't even understand their own language. And so they started a school there. And for six years, they had no results. People weren't even graduating through the school, and there were no believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were so disappointed. These Early Moravian missionaries in 1733 that they felt like they were banging their head against a wall and they decided to give up and pack up and go back to Germany. It took about six months for ships to come from home in those days. Praise God for that. So they had to wait. (laughs) And so one of the Moravian missionaries, he began to translate. He said, I've got time. Why don't I? A portion of the gospel in the New Testament just so that I can give it to these people, at least some portion of the gospel. And so he translated some parts of Mark and the the death and the, the life of Christ. And after he finished translating that portion, he decided, let me test this translation. And he called a few of the Inuit tribals and the chief, and he just wanted to read it for them and to get feedback from them whether it made sense to them. After finishing reading the first portion of Scripture in their own native tongue there was pin drop silence in the room and after that period of silence the chief stood up and asked the missionary if he would read that portion again and after he finished reading it again the chief said is what you read true and then the man said yes and he asked him again is this true and when the missionary replied for the third time, it is true, the man from Greenland asked the question, why didn't you tell us that the first day? Why did you leave it until now? We will listen now to words of this man who suffered for us. You cannot go. You have to stay. And tell us about the suffering man. See, we, we start in the wrong place when we don't start with Christ. And that's where faith is grown. Jesus ministers to us by strengthening our faith amidst doubt. That's more important than even a physical resurrection, brothers and sisters, is to have this spiritual resurrection in our hearts. But not only does he strengthen faith amidst doubt, but as we move into a second ministry of Christ, this passage is just saturated with Christ as a minister to to weak men and women. The second scene shows us this ministry of Christ. He supplies comfort in despair and we need to face this that death produces despair and that's the reality of verses 28 and following when when she had said this she she went away and she called Mary her sister secretly again in their own way possibly trying to hide Jesus from the crowds it didn't work and Mary is so different from Martha, again, with her passions and her emotions, when she finds out that the teacher is calling for her, they don't even let Jesus come to Bethany. They're just constantly interrupting him on the road. And so she runs out there, and it says urgently and quickly, and she goes to meet Jesus, and she has less composure and control than Martha. And as Jesus meets her on the outskirts it says he was not yet come to the village but was still in the place where Martha met him Mary so fast that barely moments after Martha got back Jesus hasn't moved a few steps and Mary comes running to him that's how urgent she is and the Jews follow her thinking she's going to mourn at the tomb and so that whole aura of protecting Christ is just moot at this point because all the Jews are there her first priority in verse 32, when Mary came where Jesus was, she, she fell at his feet, prostrate. That was her practice. She loved just depending on Christ. And she, she has that same lack of faith using exactly the same words that, that Martha uses. Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened. And then verse 33 even says that she begins weeping. And the word there the Greek is wailing loudly right there with all the Jews clutching onto Jesus' feet. She just loses it. And it's this, this sense of, of hopelessness that, that death has produced upon her heart. You know, and I want to tell you again, as Jesus ministers to her, He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't scold her. And we need to learn this as we sit at the gravesite of many of our dear friends to, to just weep with those who weep and not try to give them a theology lesson at that point. Some years ago, again, it was just a couple of years ago, one of our student graduates who went out into pastoral ministry, he and his wife, they had a small six-year-old son, and almost immediately in the second year of his life, he developed these tumors in his brain, and he had to go through three or four surgeries, and, and this brother's wife was a medical doctor, and I remember just sitting with her as a family and she was just weeping she said all my education that i have is useless in trying to help my own son and in god's sovereign will the son died when he was six years old after many surgeries and we just wept with them and that was all we could do and as i was doing that i remember in one phone call with this brother he said to me sammy i don't know why this happened and i wish it hadn't happened but I know my son is with Christ. And I know also that I'm going to be a better pastor because of this. And that's what we need. We, we go through suffering and it's, it's hard, but we need it to depend on Christ more. And the source of comfort is Jesus. Again, if you look at verse 33 through, through 38, as, as Mary is wailing in tears, overcome, and the Jews join in with her. You know, it's a big crying party, and Jesus is in their midst. We have the, the humanity of Christ being expressed in his emotions, and I, I know we all want to camp on verse 35, which is the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But as I studied this passage, there are two other instances of an emotion that is expressed in this passage from the Lord Jesus Christ's humanity that I think are actually more dominant. And it's even in verse 33, you find the first instance of this. It says, as he saw the wailing in Mary, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. The Greek word is embrimomai. I can't even say it. But in extra biblical Greek, this word was used for the snorting of horses. And you're saying, what in the world is this talking about? It's used about three other times in the Gospels whenever Jesus is expressing anger and indignation on something. And so the reaction that we see here being expressed is, is Jesus expressing anger and outrage and indignation in his heart. John adds that he was troubled, that his heart was literally stirred up internally. There was a a righteous rage that filled the Savior's heart as he looked at the effects of death upon his people. This is expounded very well by B.B. Warfield. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an excellent theologian from years past, and he's written an article that I would encourage you to read called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, and he speaks about this passage, and I just want to quote him because I think what he says is so significant. He says, the spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny, as Calvin phrases it. In Mary's grief, Jesus in his humanity contemplates the general misery of the whole human race because of the work of the devil and sin and death. And it is death that is the object of his wrath and behind death him who has the power of death and whom he has come into this world to crush and destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental, Warfield says. His soul is held by rage as he advances to the tomb. In Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict for his people. Ultimately, the battle is going to be won on the cross, but we see the precursor of this at Lazarus' tomb. He's the Lion of Judah Amen. heading into battle for us. And when he asks in verse 34, where have you laid him? It's to do battle with death. And I think it's therefore that in verse 35 he weeps. In fact, the Greek word there for weeping is different from the one that's used for Mary where she wails loudly. This is an internal grief that Jesus just has in his heart. And people misinterpreted emotions all the time the people in those days in verse 36 said, Oh, how he loved him. It's a, a good humanistic perspective, but it's so shallow compared to the depths of Jesus' concern, not just for them personally, but spiritually, that they would be delivered not just from this instant, but from death altogether forever. And some people hardened themselves. And they even began to mock him, saying, oh, he opened the eyes of the blind man. Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? You know, let me say this, and these people aren't saved at this point, these Jewish people, that unbelief characteristically does not rest in Jesus, but it rests in the signs and the wonders that he can do for us. And isn't that the spirit of this age? And isn't that exactly what we should not do in missions? We should not offer people the things and the gifts that God can give them. We should offer them God. We should offer them Christ. Until they know that, they're not saved. And as Jesus listens to the unbelief of these people being expressed, again he has the second emotion, right? It says the same thing. He groaned in in, in anger. Same word being used in verse 38. He's ready to battle with death. Not just physically, but even spiritually, because worse than physical death is unbelief and the deadness of men's heart. And I think in some ways he's more angry at that than he is at angry at death, which is just the consequences of that. You know, we, we must walk in the footsteps of Christ as we look at this passage, and we can just maybe get a thimble full of it. William Carey, while he was even thinking about the world, As a cobbler in England, he took scraps of shoe leather and he made a globe out of it. And it was said that every day in his devotions, he would agonize and and cry and weep over the fact that there were still unbelievers in different parts of the world. And that led him to be a missionary. But that's small compared to the agony of Christ. I, I think we're just. This is not our mission, brothers and sisters. This is Jesus's mission. And as we walk closer to Jesus, we will do the work that He has called us to. And Jesus is called for us the Man of Sorrows, isn't He? We talk about the, 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 He's a He's a Man of Learning. He's a She's a woman of music, and by that we mean that those people are characterized by those things, and our Savior in His humanity is characterized by our sorrows as He battles for us. Doesn't that give you encouragement and comfort? He sorrows over the effects of of death and sin in your life and in your family more than you do. What a Savior we have. He, He strengthens our faith amidst doubt. He supplies comfort in despair. And then finally, in this great crescendo in this passage, Jesus, in his third ministry, he speaks life into death. He speaks life. And I'm using that word intentionally because Jesus uses his word in the conclusion of his passage. The the power of Christ exists in his word. And there's two ways in which he speaks life. The one who said, let there be light at the beginning of creation in this passage says, let there be life. Amen. Out of nothing, but also out of death and decay, Jesus has the power to create life. And the first thing that he does in his, in his speaking is he prays, he advocates for us. He goes to the tomb where death is. In verse 38, being deeply moved, he came to the tomb, and it's, it's like a, a precursor of his own tomb, isn't it? It's not the same tomb, probably, but it was a cave with a stone lying against it. And you can see these pictures of ultimately him delivering Lazarus from this tomb and then going to that tomb so that he can break the tomb forever. And a stone was lying against it. Now, the stone practically was probably there to keep away animals and, and robbers, but I think as I look at this passage that that Jesus asked for the stone to be removed uh, so that they could actually see and witness with their nostrils the smell of the body of Lazarus before Jesus did his work. And in fact, Martha protests, right? As he says, remove the stone. In verse 39, Martha says, "Um, Lord, by this time there will be a stench and I'm sure you know the King James has some wonderful poetry here. By this time, he's stinketh. <laughs> and so they sensed death as that stone was rolled away. And Jesus wanted that. He, he wanted to go straight into the, the, the jaws of death, if you will, and say, I am greater. I interned at a village hospital for a few months. I was just a... Simple worker there, helper there. But I remember as, as we worked in that place, the, we did everything that we could to try to get the smell of decay and death off us. And it's just impossible. You know, and the clothes and all of that get saturated with it. That was probably very incidental and small compared to what was coming out of Lazarus's tomb after four days. And Jesus, as he... Walks into the stench of death. That's, that's how much he, he cares for his people. He walks into the stench of death for us. He says to Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And I dare say, as you look at Jesus' prayer, that what he's looking at in terms of his glory is not the smaller miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. That's wonderful. But it's the greater miracle of raising those unbelieving dead Jews from their spiritual death. And that's really the climax of this passage. And if you look at his prayer as he intercedes for these people, he's, he's constantly interceding for his people. But did you know that he even interceded for us before we were saved? And that's what he does for these people. He intercedes for them. And as he prays in verses 41 through 42, he starts with thanksgiving and he just says, God, you are sovereign. And he says, I know that you have already heard me. He he doesn't even say, Lord, would you raise Lazarus from the dead through me? He's already asked for that. He already knows it's done. That's not important. I know you've heard me. But then he says, God, you must save these people. That's the crux of his prayer if you look at it. I know that you always hear me, verse 42, but because of the people standing around me, I said it, that they may believe, that's his prayer request, that you sent me, Lord, raise them to life, that's what he's praying for, you know, we missed the point of this passage, If again, you just title it, the resurrection of Lazarus, it's the, the resurrection of all the Jewish unbelievers that mocked Jesus a few minutes ago. And here's a lesson for you. When people are mocking Christ, when people are mocking your gospel presentation, don't engage them. Talk to God. Amen. And that's the best you can do. Because you can't do anything anyway. And so Jesus prays in this way. He's praying in public so that the bystanders may have saving faith in him as the sent one. And then he speaks to death. He speaks to God and then he speaks to death. And he abolishes death forever ultimately a few weeks later when he bears our wrath from a holy God and says it is finished in verse 43 Jesus it says when he had said these things he cried out with a loud voice the Greek there literally is he yelled he shouted out now just think about this Jesus already had a powerful voice that was enough at the shores of Galilee to speak to 25,000 people approximately without a microphone. I can't imagine what it sounded like when he was yelling. <laughs> and it's 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 all that energy that he has in his battle against sin and death that is expressed when he says Lazarus come forth. And he commands death to let go of Lazarus. And in that instant, this is the power of our Savior. In that instant, the bacteria and the natural elements start marching backwards. The flesh just instantly stops decaying and in fact becomes whole in an instant. And more than anything else, life, the life of Lazarus, enters back into that body. You know, by the way, the same voice that summoned Lazarus from his tomb is the same voice that is going to summon you from your tomb if you go to a tomb Amen. on the last day. John five twenty five, truly, truly I say to you, and ours coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live, and he's going to cry out your name, he's going to cry out my name. And he's going to say, come forth, and we're going to come to be with him in eternal glory forever. Doesn't that just give you steel in your spine, no matter what you suffer through, that you know that the Savior has the power to resurrect you? And so we live for Christ, and so we suffer for Christ, and so we serve Christ, not with our own energies, but with his energy. And the man who had died bound in wrappings, his his face covered with a cloth comes stumbling out, and it's almost where there's a sense of humor from the Holy Spirit in the text, where he can't, he's, he's got his life back, but he can't see, because there's a cloth over his face, and so Jesus says, please, unbind him, and let him go. And verse 45, therefore, because of Jesus' demonstration of His glory and His power that we have seen today in this text. Therefore, many of the Jews, those that had just a few minutes ago been mocking Christ, they came to Mary and saw what He had done and they believed in Him. This is the goal of Christ. This is the goal of Christ, to bring about trust in His person. This was the real crescendo of this miracle is, is the spiritual resurrection of these Jews. Some did not believe, but there were many that believed, and we're going to see them one day because of what Jesus did. Brothers and sisters, this is the Savior that we have on our side. And this is why Paul in eighty sixty seven, from the Marmertine prison, before he was beheaded on the Ostian way, just three miles outside of Rome, in the last few, few weeks of his life, as he began to think about the fact that he was never going to preach again, he was never going to evangelize again, that he was never going to travel on missionary journeys, does he sink into a, woe is me, I am undone? No, he writes 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, you find these verses. 2 Timothy 1:12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. And it's not because of me. I'm not ashamed, for I... Know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Amen. He says in chapter 4, 2 Timothy, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, not only to me, countryside church, but also to all of you who have loved as if you're in. It's not our mission, it's His mission. It's not our strength, it's His strength. Let's march leaning on Him. Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this view of Jesus that we need, especially in our day and age, that enables us to live and serve You, recognizing that we are weak in our faith, we are those that tend to despair and and even get discouraged by death, but you are the God who walks with us through those struggles and enables us to live by faith, not ashamed of the gospel. Use us, Lord, as we trust in you to die to ourselves and fade away and shine and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his precious name. Amen.